This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 4th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Paul O'Toole about what happens to our gut microbiota as we age. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the long lives of grandmothers. The grandmother hypothesis is an attempt to explain why women past reproductive age continue to live. (laughs) It sounds harsh, but in simple evolutionary terms, once you're done reproducing, you cease to matter. Up to now, the grandmother hypothesis has been based on the idea that caring for your children's children, a.k.a. your grandkids, buys you some lifespan after your reproductive years come to a close. Why would that be? Your grandchildren still carry some of your genes. And the whole point of evolution, or one of the main points of evolution, is to get your genes passed down to as many generations as possible. So if grandmothers stick around, if they're taking care of their grandkids, they are increasing the survival ability of their grandkids, and therefore they're increasing the likelihood that their genes will still be represented in the population. And just a note here, we're talking about grandmothers because supposedly grandfathers can keep reproducing indefinitely. True. The latest study we're going to talk about today looks at genes that matter to older folks and may incidentally help support the grandma hypothesis. What genes did they look at? One of the primary genes they looked at was a gene called CD33. This is a gene that's been linked to Alzheimer's. One version of this gene appears to make people much more susceptible to Alzheimer's, while another version of the gene seems to be protective against Alzheimer's. And what the researchers want to see is how has that gene or how have those variants sort of evolved and stuck around in the human population over evolutionary time. And that's where the chimps come in, right? Right. They wanted to see whether chimps and bonobos, which are our closest living relatives, whether they had similar versions of this gene. And what the researchers found, which was really interesting, is that when they looked at the version of CD33 that predisposes to Alzheimer's, they found this in humans and chimps and bonobos, which suggests that this is something that's been around for a long time. 
but the protective version of CD33 was only found in the human samples, which suggests that only human beings have evolved this anti-Alzheimer's, if you want to call it, version of this gene. I mean, one reason might be is that chimpanzees tend to, unlike humans, they tend to die after they've stopped reproducing. And so you wouldn't necessarily need a gene that's protective against Alzheimer's because you're never going to get old enough to develop the symptoms of Alzheimer's. But with humans, because we are living that much longer past our reproductive years, and as we get older, we're more susceptible to diseases like Alzheimer's, it would make sense for us to have evolved something that protects us against it. Here's where we come back to the facts of evolution, though. Just because something helps you survive past the age of reproduction, how does that get passed down? Is it because of this gramma effect? Or could this be a coincidence? Could these genes be important for our younger days and then just happen to also prevent Alzheimer's? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's clear from this study. This is mainly a correlation that's showing us that this could be one possible mechanism, not for why we have grandmothers, but for why those grandmothers are mentally with it enough to be able to fulfill the strategy of the grandmother hypothesis, which is to be able to take care of their grandchildren. Next up, we have a story on how the moon got its tilt. Is the moon tilted? Can something round be tilted? <laughs> okay. We're really talking about the moon's orbit. Uh, how tilty is it? Well, the moon has what's called an orbital inclination of five degrees, and this is basically a five-degree tilt from the plane on which Earth orbits the sun. Now, that's an interesting number because it shouldn't really have this tilt based on some of the ways we think the moon could have formed. And one of those ways is that a Mars-sized planet collided with Earth, flung all this material into space that coalesced into the moon. Now, if that had happened, theoretically, the moon should only have a tilt of about one degree. And so researchers refer to this as the lunar inclination problem. Not as great as the grandmother hypothesis. No. <laughs> the researchers now in this study use modeling to try to figure out how exactly the moon's orbit ended up the way that it did. What were they modeling? They were trying to figure out what may have happened in the early solar system. And one hypothesis is that our early solar system was populated with lots of mini planets that were sort of zooming around. And the question was, well, maybe one of these mini planets, or maybe a lot of them, were zooming close to our moon and tugging, gravitationally tugging on it. And maybe that gave it the strange orbit that it has. And there's support for this idea, both in their data and here on Earth, right? Solid gold proof? Well, right. So first of all, there's simulations. They ran lots of simulations, and the simulations actually showed that this was possible. And if it had happened this way, they got a tilt similar to the tilt that we see today. But the other evidence that you alluded to addresses another mystery, which is where all of our precious metals on Earth came from, specifically metals like platinum and gold. It's not thought that Earth was, quote unquote, born with these metals. And what's cool about this mini planet hypothesis is that a lot of these mini planets could have actually slammed into Earth and they were potentially rich in a lot of these precious metals. And that's where our gold and platinum came from. Lastly, we have a story on the brains of men and women. There are a couple of tried and true methods of telling girls from boys. But what about our brains? Can you sort people into bathrooms based on what their brains look like? Why are we even asking this question? There's a couple of big reasons. First of all, a lot of the scientific studies that look at neuroanatomy 
assume that there are differences between the male and female brains. And when they look at their subjects, they separate males and females. This is important for everything from therapy to particular drugs. You know, should we be giving men and women different types of psychotherapeutic drugs? And then broader questions like, you know, is there really such a thing as gender? I mean, is this something that's all in our mind? I mean, are there really mental differences between men and women that could be teased apart by looking at differences in brain anatomy. Sounds like we do need to ask these questions, David. This is kind of a multi-step study here. How did they start to answer this question? What the researchers did was they looked at a lot of brain scans, MRI images of the brain, and they were looking at things like gray matter, which is this dark knobby tissue that contains the core of the nerve cells in our brain, white matter, which is the bundles of nerve fibers that transmit signals around the nervous system. And they were looking for, are there differences in the distribution, the concentration, the connections in male and female brains? After they examined and scored all these different brains, what did they find out about the differences between male and female brains? Well, the really interesting thing is they really didn't find differences. I mean, even though some of the brains had regions that the, the researchers said, well, maybe there's a little bit more male or there's a little bit more female, what they found is when they looked at all these brains, they weren't finding very consistent differences. A lot of, like, quote-unquote, female brains had a lot of, quote-unquote, male structures or male characteristics and vice versa. There really wasn't much consistency that allowed the researchers to do this binary thing where they say, this is a male brain, this is a female brain. There's a ton of variety in people's brains. That totally makes sense. And we won't be using MRIs to sort people into bathrooms. But does that mean that we can ignore sex when doing studies on the brain? Well, that's one potential implication is how much attention should we be paying to sex when we study the brain, or again, when we develop therapeutics that target the brain. And this study at least suggests that we shouldn't be paying that much attention to sex, that we should just be paying attention to the fact that everybody's a human being. All of this said, there do seem to be differences. If you look at things like diseases, for example, males are five times as likely to develop autism, and females are twice as likely to suffer from depression. So that does suggest that there are important differences in the brain, Perhaps they just weren't teased out by this study. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, we've got a story about the magnetic fields of black holes. Also a story about what a man's sperm says about how much he weighs. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we are covering the Paris climate talks and some of the big revelations out of there and also interviewing some of the key players involved in those talks. Also a story about harnessing indigenous people to store carbon in tropical forests, also related to climate change. And we've got our special issue on aging this week, including a story I wrote about the lifespan of our pets. Could dogs one day live to 300 years? And why do cats tend to live longer than dogs? Check out the site to find out. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Investigations into the relationship between the human gut microbiome and health tend to focus on middle-aged adults. But what happens to our microbiota as we age? 
As part of this week's special section on aging, Paul O'Toole discusses how changes in diet, living conditions, activity level, and social circumstances in older people could all contribute to a changing microbiome over time with potential health consequences. I'm Suzanne Bard. The human gut microbiome is the name given to the collection of bacteria and protozoa and fungi and all microorganisms in the gut, but most people are referring only to the bacteria. And they're important for health because humans have evolved over a couple hundred thousand years since we diverged from other hominids, and we've always had gut bacteria inside our bodies, and they've co-evolved with us to help us to digest components of our diet, but it also seems plausible that they've been talking to our immune system for a long time and helping the human immune system to distinguish between self and non-self because it transpires that changes in the gut microbiota are commonly seen in gut conditions which involve inflammation, things like colitis and inflammatory bowel disease. How many microorganisms are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, those figures, they have been published and it's difficult to estimate how accurate they are. It's commonly said that we have 10 to the power of 14 organisms in total, that we have a mass of bacteria approximating a soccer ball. I really don't know how accurate that one is. It transpires that across all humans, there's somewhere between two and 3,000 different species. But in any one person, it seems like there's probably 100 species and 150 strains. All right. And you said that we as a species co-evolved with these microbes. But for each individual person, where do we get our microbiome from? That's a great question. I mean, to answer that, you really got to go back to infancy. And we know that infants born through natural vaginal birth get their first dose of microbiota from their mom's delivery, whereas kids who are born by C-section get their starting microbiota from their mom's skin or from the environment of the ward. And then as the infants mature, they get microbes from the environment and from other adults. And it seems like the most likely route is what's called scientifically fecal-oral, which means that bacteria present in feces are present in the environment and the infants pick them up and they get into their gut that way. Interesting. So something that we don't normally think of as healthy, but in terms of getting a a healthy gut microbiome, we need the fecal material. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the education process because most non-specialists think that gut bacteria, they know you got to wash your hands after you go to the bathroom and you don't want to get food poisoning. And if you get Campylobacter or Salmonella, you're in trouble. They think that all gut bacteria are bad, which of course is not the case because you've got this massive community of organisms which is constantly present, which is actually part of the health balance of the human body. So what are some of the factors that help maintain the composition of gut microbes or the microbiota in the gut over time? And why would gut microbiota change over the course of a person's lifetime? The factors that would maintain the composition of the microbiota are essentially healthy living without any medical misadventures, meaning that if you are eating normally and you don't have any gut disease, the gut microbiota is pretty much self-sustaining. Now, probably the biggest change to the human microbiota was the development of highly processed foods, industrialized foods, where a lot of the foods consumed by people are pretty dissimilar to what they would have consumed 100 years ago, let alone 1,000 years ago. So it seems that one of the biggest modifiers of the gut microbiota is the diet. But you also have things like antibiotic treatments, and it's well established that antibiotics have a short, sharp effect on the microbiota, and it rebounds. But if you give continuous doses of antibiotics, you change the microbiota, 
And uh, Marty Blazer at NYU has a theory that this is a contributory factor to the development of obesity on a global scale. It's likely that there are other factors in contemporary civilization which contribute to changes in the microbiota. So for example, there was an exciting paper recently by Andy Gewurz in Georgia who showed that emulsifiers, which are commonly present in processed foods, can affect the microbiota. And there was an exciting paper by Aaron Siegel and colleagues in the Wiseman in Israel showing that artificial sweeteners can also impact on the microbiota. So I think a lot of commentators think that many of the factors in contemporary Western diet have subtle effects on the microbiota, which we didn't realize until recently. Fascinating. How does aging play a role? I mean, a lot of the things that we do as, say, middle-aged people, we change our habits and lifestyles as we age and move to different facilities, things like that. So talk about some of the things that might change how our microbiota might be affected by the changes in aging. Sure. Aging brings with us a number of physiological changes, which are to some extent inescapable. So at the extreme end, you have people who have lost a dentition, loss of saliva production, loss of sense of taste. So they can lead to pretty dramatic changes into their food intake patterns. And as I said before, habitual diet seems to be an important modifier of the microbiota. Then another feature of aging is less mobility and less exercise. And by and large, if you don't get much exercise, even just walking around, your intestine slows down. And that changes the dynamics of the way the bacteria interact, and more slow-growing species tend to prefer those conditions. So there's a strong link between overall physical activity and microbiota composition. Other things like medication. So as you probably know, a lot of older folks take a lot of medicines, and that's a success story for modern medicine. We've triumphed over a lot of trivial diseases, but polypharmacy is increasingly recognized as having an effect on the microbiota, not just antibiotics. There are other components of modern medicine which have previously overlooked side effects in that they act on the microbiota. And as you mentioned, sometimes people need to go into long-term residential care, and that can also be accompanied by a change in diet. So there's a complex interaction between declining physical potential, declining exercise, declining physiological features such as digestion, which all impact on the microbiota. All right. And so looking at it from the other direction, how would that changing microbiota, how can it affect the aging process? We have identified correlations between changes in the microbiota in some older people and inferior clinical measurements. So, for example, we see that some people with a poor microbiota have lower levels of short-chain fatty acids, which are metabolites produced by bacteria from fibers in the diet. And we know from decades of research that these short-chain fatty acids are important energy sources, which middle-aged adults and younger we take for granted. We produce a lot of butyrate, acetate, and propionate from fruit and fibers. And our body says, thank you very much, and it takes them up directly. And we don't consume those short-chain fatty acids. They have to be made by microbes. So we see that elderly folks who have lower capacity to make those are frailer. Now, because what we've done to date are cross-sectional studies, we cannot prove that there's a direct cause between the lower levels of those metabolites and the frailty. And similarly, we've seen correlations between 
a low diversity microbiota and lower muscle mass, which we call sarcopenia, and also inflammation, which means unwanted activity of the innate immune system. So inflammation in this context does not mean a swollen thumb. It means that your immune system is jangling and reacting with chasing shadows, if you will. So when you get your winter flu vaccine or your pneumococcal vaccine, it doesn't work because your immune system is already busy. And there are plausible mechanisms how the microbiota can control that. Now, the caveat is that we have inferred these correlations from a cross-sectional analysis, and now we have to go and prove that they're actually causative. So we're, we're running two studies now, both within Ireland and across Europe, to change the diet of elderly folks to improve their microbiota. And if our hypothesis is correct, we'll see improvements in those clinical measures that I just described. Interesting. So how long are these studies, and when do you get your first data back on that? The Irish study is still in progress, and it's a six-month dietary intervention. And that's a local study here in Cork. And we also have a European project called New Age, which is running in five European countries. And we have the data right now. We're in the process of analyzing that. So we hope to be able to report that sometime in early 2016. How does the gut microbiota differ between people? I think a good way to describe this is that your microbiota is like an onion, whereby you've got an inner core of bacteria and then as you move outwards from the center, you've got layers of different bacterial types. And what we see is that the healthiest people in the community have one kind of onion with a very high diversity core, and then the people who are frailest in long-term residential care have another onion with a different core. And then within those two broad categories, you can have different compositions of the outer shells. So you can have a person with really good high diversity in the community, but you've got someone else who's got the same core but slightly lower diversity. And this is part of actually a nuanced picture where we see transitions from the best microbiota to the worst microbiota. But I think that's a, a useful analogy to describe. So let's talk a little bit more about diet and gut bacteria. As a person ages, how does their diet potentially affect their gut bacteria? The notion that the diet modulates or controls the microbiota is pretty well established. There were studies a couple of years ago comparing Italian kids and kids in Africa. And the rural kids in Africa had a different microbiota, which had more bacteria capable of breaking down fibers. And then scientists in Pennsylvania, led by Gary Wu, did a dietary intervention where they put people on different diets and show that they react in a predictable way, whereby a typical Western diet had one group of organisms and a diet which is richer in fibers, which nowadays in the West we don't typically consume, had a different kind of microbiota. One of the interesting features of the elderly is that we realize that it's not just dietary composition, it's the healthy food diversity. So one could consume what's nominally a healthy diet by having broccoli every day for the rest of your life, but there'd be no diversity, and you would have a pretty lousy, low-diversity microbiota. So what you need to do is to have a high healthy food diversity diet or healthy food diversity index. In other words, a broad range of different health-related foods as minimally processed as possible. And when we see individuals with a healthy food diversity index, we see that they have a high diversity microbiota and they typically have um, better clinical metadata as well. We also recently did a study, a collaboration with a group in Italy where we compared omnivores, vegans, and vegetarians, and we saw good correlations between the habitual diets and the microbiota type. But we also saw that in the omnivores, in other words, the people who did eat meat, that if they adhered to a Mediterranean-type diet, 
they also had better clinical metadata. They had better measures of biomarkers for risk for cardiovascular disease. So the good news is that at any life stage, be it young, middle-aged, or elderly, if you eat a good diet, you don't have to be vegetarian or vegan to get some of the benefits of that kind of dietary pattern. So the Mediterranean diet has fish, olive oil, some legumes, fruits, vegetables, and nuts, right? That's right, and it also has regular but moderate alcohol consumption, which I like. <laughs> right. I'd be shouting from the rooftops if I had the data from the interventional studies. I think people have always known that a good diet is something you should be pursuing. And people have traditionally been poor about doing that at all life stages. And unfortunately, when people get old, it becomes difficult, either because of family reasons or living alone or financial reasons or whatever. But from a purely scientific perspective, I believe that a diverse diet is an important part of healthy aging. I'm hopeful that there will be a microbial link that we can substantiate in less than a year's time. And I do think that this will become an important part of nutritional research because it will be recognized that it's not just what we eat which is important, it's what happens after the microbes convert into various health-related metabolites that needs to be monitored. And how does the gut microbiota relate to cognitive performance? We and others are interested in the brain-gut access, which is the notion that bacteria can control your mood and your behavior and also the level of function of your brain. Now, to a physiologist, that might sound fanciful, but the reason that scientists believe it could be true is because gut bacteria produce chemicals which are direct analogs of human neurotransmitters. I mean, there's only a limited range of chemicals that living systems can use to transmit neurological information. And it turns out that the stuff in your synapses or the stuff that your brain uses for turning circuits on and off can also be produced by bacteria. Some of them can. So some of my colleagues here in the APC have been doing a lot of studies of the effect of gut bacteria on anxiety and depression, initially in the context of IBS, but now a lot for clinical depression. And for the elderly, we do see links to cognitive function. There are, again, correlations in this cross-sectional data. So we're trying to figure out which bacterial genes and which metabolites might be responsible. There's really complex biochemistry at play here, and you also have to be cognizant of the diets people are consuming because that can be a second source of these chemicals. So we're optimistic, and we've got a new grad student who's just started on this to try and tease out how these microbes might be making things which affect cognitive performance in the elderly. Any other directions you see this research going in? Sure, there's a couple of things. In terms of next steps in research, I can see why regular microbiota profiling could be useful in the same way that you go and get your blood pressure checked, particularly as you age or get your cholesterol measured. I think it's going to transpire to be useful to have your gut microbiota profiled. If our attempts to manipulate the microbiota and improve health are successful, it'll mean that the microbiota is a valid target for manipulation. And then we will need to either restore the microbiota in people who have a low diversity microbiota or restore particular agents. Now, we do have experience of this from fecal microbiota transplantations. This is the clinical practice whereby if somebody has diarrhea because of an organism called C. diff, and this ironically is caused by successive rounds of broad-spectrum antibiotics which kill the gut microbiota, and this other organism, C. diff, flourishes. The best way to cure that is to give the person a fecal microbiota transplant. You give them an enema or a colonoscopic irrigation with 
a suspended fecal sample from a healthy donor. And that procedure works 95% effectively for a very dangerous disease. So we're thinking about this paradigm and we're trying to develop artificial stool consortia of purified microbes because nobody really likes the prospect of a stool transplant. And we could see applications of that for the elderly too. So if an old person is no longer capable of producing butyrate, well then we could give them a shot of bacteria which are capable of producing butyrate and restore that metabolic activity to their intestine. So those are our future horizons. Thanks so much for speaking with me. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Paul O'Toole and Ian Jeffrey write about the relationship between aging, gut microbiota, and health. This Week in Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.